I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Happy Mama Movement podcast. I'm Amy Taylor-Kabaz. I would like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on which this podcast is recorded as the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. And as this podcast is dedicated to the wisdom and knowledge of motherhood, I would like to acknowledge the mothers of this land, the Elders, their wisdom, their knowing and my own elders and teachers. Welcome back, mamas. When I create this podcast, I always have in mind that I want it to be a collection of conversations that meets in the middle between the experts and the researchers and the authorities on motherhood and matrescence and the lived experience of women nowadays. I hope and desire that these conversations land somewhere in the middle so that we continue to learn and grow through the beautiful new insights that are coming to the world through matrescence, but also we hear each other's voices and stories so we know we're not alone. And I feel like today's episode lands in that exact place. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Pamela Douglas, who is a GP and a researcher and the creator of a new way of supporting mothers, as well as the practitioners around her in empowering her to see the experience of becoming a mother and trusting herself and her baby differently. I was led to Dr. Pamela Douglas's work through a Mama Rising student, and when I landed on her website and began to research and read what she is here to do, I knew that this is exactly what I want to bring to you. In this conversation, we talk about the overdiagnosis and over-medicalized way we look at birthing in the Western world, how that disempowers a woman how that takes away her experience and trust in herself, and also what we can do differently, not only as an individual though, but also as a collective and a culture and society. As always, we don't have clear answers, but we know what we're seeking. And I think this interview with Pamela highlights that beautifully. Hope you agree, enjoy. Pamela Douglas, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It is such an honour to speak to someone with so much depth of experience and wisdom in how we can support mothers differently. So thank you and welcome. Well, thanks, Amy. 
generous words. It's a real pleasure for me to be here speaking with you now. I first came across your work because one of the women in Mama Rising said to me, you have to get Pamela on your podcasts a long time ago. Actually, it's taken us a while to make this work between the two of us because she experienced your support firsthand as a new mum. She um, actually isn't Australian and lives overseas, but was here when she had her babies. So totally without any support network and really credits you with how she got through that very challenging time. And so that then led me to land on your website and look at your work. And my goodness, as I said, you have so much to share with us. So maybe if you first could start with your experience and your um, and what you have done with mamas over all of these years, how you've supported them. Well, thanks, Amy. Um, well, so pull me up if I'm carrying on too much, but you see, I started out in general practice, I'm a GP, um, in the mid-1980s, so 1987, and actually had the privilege of working um, in the First Nations context, so in Indigenous health. Uh, and as you can imagine, I learned a lot from that cross-cultural, very special cross-cultural context, given that these are the first people on our land the oldest continuous culture on earth. Um, so foundational um, experiences there in uh, how First Nations peoples, particularly more traditional contexts, um, dealt with, with um, caring for their babies, mm. their babies and toddlers. Um, then um, for years, I was in general practice, uh, special interest in women's health, special interest in mental health. And, and really from, from very early on when I had my own um, two babies, a special interest in, in um, breastfeeding, clinical breastfeeding support, and how it is in our society that we go about um, caring for mothers and babies, parents and babies. Um, so I had qualified um, as an international board lactation consultant from 1994 and practiced breastfeeding medicine from then on in those years in a generalist's context. Um, but I was also um, engaging research and um, doing a PhD. So I was engaged in medical research around um, uh, the, you know, the care of, of mothers and babies, parents and babies. But also um, over the years, um, as my own children were, were still in the house, but getting bigger, um, I did a PhD that was in um, uh, what was called then women's studies or gender studies and, uh, um, and creative writing. And I was very interested in the way women told their own embodied their subjective stories about their transition um, into motherhood. Um, so I didn't use the word matrescence then, um, but I used, I used other words that um, um, I hoped captured something of the extraordinary indeed numinous nature of this rite of passage um, from conception right through to those early um, days, weeks, months of, of caring for a baby. Um, 
So I was both interested in the stories that women tell and in making sense of my own story, very interested in the silence in those years that surrounded this. This was taboo, you know, Amy, until quite late in my life where, um, you know, a woman like yourself now is, is devoted to, to having these conversations. But, you know, when I had my babies in 1990, 1992, there was an extraordinary silence of, of women writing out of their bodies about what was happening out of their own experiences. And, um, and of course, into that, that gap, which I framed really as a, a relative lack of a cultural imaginary, cultural images that mm. celebrate the incredible power of this rite of passage. Well, into that socio-cultural gap has come my own profession. And although my own profession have been very good at saving lives, protecting against injury through this time of life, and that's all incredibly important, um, we've also co-opted, if you like, the stories that women tell about their own bodies. So I guess practically what I'm saying is that there's a great deal of over-medicalisation and over-diagnosis um, through this rite of passage that um, we, we, we call matrescence. Um, and although we want the very best of what medicine has to offer, what our health system has to offer, it is um, a serious and very disempowering problem to, to see just how widespread over-diagnosis and over-treatment is. So I then set about, see, I've got lots to say, so just interrupt me if I... No, please don't. <laughs> so, so I then set about um, really looking at how I could perhaps bring some of this that was being talked about and acknowledged, this, this absence, if you like, of empowering um, uh, stories about what it is to be doing the, the, the rite of passage of matrescence, um, how I could start to bridge the gap to bring power back to that woman or to those parents at this time of life um, in very practical ways through looking at um, um, how our health professionals and providers um, offered care to mothers and babies, parents and babies. And so really from um, well, the late 1990s into the 2000s, I'd started to engage research, medical research, um, and put together programs that I called the Possums Programs. And as time passed, I called them Neuroprotective Developmental Care as a more sort of technical term, NDC, or the Possums Programs, which they're quite affectionately known as, I think, by many families. Well, um, I think more and more people have become aware of the possums programs. Um, and so uh, I started to deliver NDC or the possums programs in clinical contexts from about 2011. And in fact, in um, 2013, I founded a charity, which I um, needed to resign from very sadly. Um, at the end of January this year. And so NDC or the Possums programs are being rebuilt in an updated way at drpam.au or mm -hmm. drpam.baby. And I'm starting 
um, to educate health professionals in the NDC programs um, from, from July, actually. So, yeah, so these are programs that um, have been um, really focused on bringing the power back into the hands of families as the expert on their own little bubby at the same time as we provide um, the best possible health system care, addressing mm -hmm. overdiagnosis and overtreatment, um, but also um, dealing with the incredible amounts of conflicting advice that parents receive, which parents also find really distressing, really quite disempowering. Yes. So that's a bit of an overview. Ah, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, I, I love how um, in the work that you've done and what I've read about what you are sharing, you draw this link between the way that we as a culture have have really capitalised and, and uh, taken from the earth over and over and over again and we've gotten to this point in such dire straits with our environment. You liken that to what women experience in the in the current medical system. Can you explain a little bit about that? Like what do you see is the commonality between those two? What we've done to our planet and how we treat women in pregnancy and birth? Uh, I do think that um, both profoundly um, shaped so the way we treat women and babies in particular mm -hmm. and, uh, and our, our sort of socio-cultural attitudes to using the earth's resources um, arise out of that they're, they're historically constructed they arise out of a particular western worldview um, uh, so the body the human body our relationship to our female bodies um, has or, or the society's relationship to female bodies has mirrored um, society's relationship to, to the earth, to the planet, to the absolutely in, environment, um, <clears throat> and it's it's been one of um, um, I guess you could say disconnection, like uh, a, a failure to really um, uh, understand the incredible complexity of the ecosystems of the planet, or indeed the the ecosystems of that woman and her baby, parents and babies, both physiological down to the very cells of our bodies, they're nested, if we use the language of complexity science, nested in a whole range of other complex systems, um, whether it's the family, whether it's friendships, whether it's social um, factors that, that come into play around um, the family's life. Does that make sense? I mean, um, so, so there's very clear resonances. There's no doubt about that. It's to do with um, a, a patriarchal society with yes. deep, deep roots. Don't want to be simplistic about it, but we can't resile from this, and how that's still playing out um, today um, in a health system that's just not. I mean, we've had, um, let's say, fifty years of a real research focus on why, say, human milk is best for human babies. In fact, it really doesn't help to, to, to say that to women now because it's so embedded. We, we know that. The problem is why, over and over as women, are we finding so many insurmountable obstacles to getting that human milk from our breast into the bubby's tummy? Um, that kind of clinical 
research mm -hmm. is still a frontier. It's just not been a research priority. And then right across the domains that I might sort of frame as the neuroprotective developmental care or possums programs, whether it's sleep, whether it's a baby's sensory motor needs, um, whether it's the, the feeds, the breastfeeding, the feeds, whether it's um, how we make sense of baby's behaviour and diagnose various conditions, and whether it's that woman, um, those parents, um, emotional wellbeing and mental health. Um, right across this, really, we're looking at research frontiers. Um, it's why there's so much conflicting advice. And frankly, it wouldn't be tolerated at any other time in the lifespan. It really is historically um, rooted and it, it, it really is um, a feminist issue, always has been from my perspective. Um, oh, amen, mm, absolutely. Mm. It actually makes me emotional the way you say it wouldn't be tolerated at any other point or to any other gender, I must say. Um, you know, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows very well, probably the story of my struggles with my firstborn, who's now 15, and how much that still brings emotions to the surface so quickly when we talk about this. Because I am not alone or unique in how deeply uh, unprepared I was, how much I immediately was overdiagnosed and over-medicalised and how much I never trusted myself in this process and how long, even 15 years later, how long that impact has had on me and to undo that impact. I really feel that, although, as you said, the medical treatment of life-threatening conditions and things that we needed to do has been profound, but in that process, um, so many of us go into this really not trusting ourselves at all. When you were working in those First Nation families at the beginning of all of this career and since then, how what have you seen that you think we could do differently? What have you drawn on through all of that that you would love for new mamas especially to feel and experience? Mm -hmm. So I, I would like to um, just and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which I'm standing here, Amy, which is the Yagara, Jagara and Tubal peoples. Um, and also acknowledge that I can't really begin to know um, uh, traditional or cultural contexts amongst First Nations peoples. Um, and so uh, what I share is simply my experience as an outsider who was in certain respects brought in with generosity, which of course is you know, so often the case. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so I'll just talk about uh, my experiences in that um, privileged context mm. of working with First Nations peoples. I was um, influenced by a book, Nature and Nurture, um, published just a couple of years prior to when I worked Aboriginal and Islander Community Health Service by Annette Hamilton, who was the first female anthropologist to deeply engage um, First Nations peoples, the Umbra people. And, uh, and I'm heartened to see that her work in that book is drawn on heavily in um, 
um, what I understand to be the most recent document that's come out speaking from First Nations perspective to First Nations peoples about um, how First Nations peoples raise their, their, their babies. So I feel as though that sort of speaks to um, an integrity in her work that she's mm. quite highly, quite, quite heavily quoted. So she influenced me and then I saw this, of course, day by day when I had some access into more traditional contexts. Um, that there was that responding um, to the baby's communications or cues um, uh, whenever the little one um, signalled. And often that might be offering the breast um, in the breastfeeding context, uh, but the little one was carried not necessarily by that um, biological mother, but, but by this um, multi-centric, if you like, um, this network of loving adults um, instead of the sort of one-on-one -on -one that our primary carers often find ourselves locked into in our society. Um, so, uh, so a lot of responsivity but from um, a range of other loving adults and indeed siblings, older siblings, physical contact, the babies were being carried. Um, and uh, um, and then the richness of the sensory motor context in which those little ones found themselves. So of course, physical contact in itself is a very rich form of sensory motor stimulation for a small person, for a baby. Um, but also in lives that had much greater access to the outdoor door world, to, to the, the, the um, natural environment. Um, little ones were exposed for large portions of their days um, to the incredible complexity of the natural environment. And that's where I first started to think about the low sensory, relatively low sensory interiors of our own environments um, inside the home and how our babies, um, I argued from very early on as I began to make my own contributions, say with the Possum Sleep Program, um, a, a dialing up um, because they're not receiving what they've ex they, they've sort of been evolutionarily hardwired to expect in terms of rich input across all the senses, including motoric stimulation, proprioceptive vestibular. Um, so when I first started to publish research papers, thinking, okay, I, I, I'd like to. You know, I, I felt with the generalist's brain, being a GP who's um, able to, you know, GPs are really good, I like to think, you know, at integrating right across all the social sciences, very interdisciplinary brains we GPs have. And when I started to publish research, it was using interdisciplinary lenses, cross-cultural lenses, to make sense of infant crying, which, you know, back then we were all being taught was kind of developmentally normal, crying for a number of hours each day. But actually, if you looked at other cultures, our little ones weren't crying for that kind of duration that we often saw in the West. So I was really interested in, okay, let's look across all the domains of baby care um, and translate this into a set of sort of health system or medical programs that address the kinds of things that we have trouble um, uh, uh, 
you know, offering parents, if you like, in our society, addressing. So I guess I was setting out on this rather big project, Amy, of making a contribution to paradigm shift, a movement for change. And I always call them this movement mm. um, for change in early life, growing joy in early life, because mm -hmm. frankly, um, the rules, you know, the, the, the amount of rule giving um, that, that occurs now um, for parents with babies is, it's, it's depressing. And, uh, it is. Um, it makes yeah. me sad listening to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just how, and I don't want to be over dramatic with my words, but just how wrong we've got it on so many levels that we we don't understand our own bodies as women, as girls, right from the very beginning. It is so hushed and, and silenced and hopefully we're doing a bit better with my daughters. Nothing's, you know, taboo and <laughs> I wonder how far we've gone with all of that now. But, you know, we, we right from the beginning, we, she doesn't understand her body. She's afraid of the process. She's over-medicalised and over-treated. Then she goes home with her baby to a quiet house, often on her own, gets a check-in six weeks later, often walks into a GP's office who, again, is doing the best they can but is in a system that doesn't allow much more support than that. And then there's this beautiful little baby who is struggling and crying and, ah, oh, it just, it breaks my heart just how far we have gone in the wrong direction is how I feel. What do you feel about that? Yeah, well, I guess, um, you know, that's why this has become my life work, really, because I, did, I think it really matters. You know, we've got this exquisitely neuroplastic period at the beginning of life for the infant. And then, of course, you've already commented, Amy, on how a woman carries this in her body, in her soul, really, her psyche, um, really lifelong because there's often grief and trauma associated mm -hmm. with that. And, you know, the truth is, as humans, we will regularly encounter grief and trauma. But there's so much here that I think we could do differently to better nurture our families through what is inevitably um, you know, a very challenging time of life. But I think there's a lot of what I would call iatrogenic stuff happening. So the iatrogenic is that word that means um, problems or, or sicknesses created by the health system quite accidentally. Um, but I think we have a situation where um, for all the, you know, uh, power, we, we have one of the best health systems in the world and I'm deeply grateful for it. So there's so much there that, that we, you know, we need to be grateful for here in Australia. But nevertheless, um, as occurs around much of, of the world in terms of advanced economies, we, we often give advice that makes things so much harder than it needs to be um, for our women and their babies or our parents and babies. I'm careful to, I want to be um, inclusive in my language because I do understand that there are um, many carers or parents who don't necessarily identify um, as... Um, um, uh, you know, who identifies gender fluid, um, yes, or um, uh, uh, not specifically male or not specifically female. So I would 
want um, those folks to be perfectly included in all the work that I do as well. Yes. Mm. So what is the answer? <laughs> what is the answer? Well, well, well obviously, um, although um, there's many contributions that are required to make change, to bring paradigm shift here in this space, and I've seen a lot of it beginning to happen actually um, as, as the years have passed through my professional life. But of course, I've been really focused on these specific programs, NDC or the Possums programs, because I have the view that um, they're a particularly powerful set of tools, either for parents with babies and toddlers, or for health professionals and providers who um, are dealing with parents with little ones in the house. So, um, so I, I have the view, and, and, and in fact, I think there's nine research studies, evaluations showing the benefits of these programs for parents now. So a really good start in terms of positive research evaluations built on, um, oh, you know, maybe 20 or more um, research publications that show the evidence base, that do what, you know, what are called systematic reviews, or um, do a kind of paradigm shift in the way we make sense of the existing research out there. So I laid the foundations that way with various teams over the years. And then um, there've been about nine positive evaluations of what we're doing with NDC. And if you were to summarise it in lay terms for yes. the mama who's really yeah. at the moment struggling with this uh, yeah. early stage still, yeah. what are the core yeah. principles of the NDC? Yeah. So um, in NDC or the Possums programs, I've been very focused on responsive care to the baby, cued care, which can be quite different to some of the advice. For instance, the sleep training advice mm. that, that parents commonly receive these days. Um, responsive care, a focus on turning down the dial on the baby's sympathetic nervous system, you might say, as well as our own mm. dial on the sympathetic nervous system. But See, that opens up so much because any parent will tell you, any mum will tell you, I can be as responsive as, as, as I can possibly be and the baby still keeps crying or um, I'm still having this hellish time with the breastfeeding or, um, you know, I'm insanely sleep deprived. Um, you know, the baby's screaming for hours each day. So, so actually then, even though we're building up um, a sensible pattern of, of responding to the baby and not giving advice that interrupts that um, drive we have for really building up attachment um, in positive ways with our baby. Um, then I've had to unravel all of that right across um, what's happening with the breastfeeding feeds. Why is there so much um, breastfeeding difficulty that's just not actually being picked up or managed in ways that are effective. Um, people get cross with me for saying that, but I think we just, every health professional is doing their absolute best. 
but we just have to be straight that we're operating in a research frontier. So we're all just doing our best without really good solid evidence. So, you know, why are there these big blind spots in terms of breastfeeding or even feeding, bottle feeding support? Why um, is sleep training dominant when the research would show us that it doesn't really decrease the frequency of night waking? What can we do that, you know, better addresses this? And, and in just a few weeks' time, I've got my updated Possum's Baby and Toddler Sleep Program coming out on drpam.au. Um, or, you know, why do we misunderstand a baby's sensory motor needs? What do we need to be doing there um, to help that little one's sensory motor needs be better met so the bubby's dialed down? Why, if we look at the baby's health, are we interpreting baby behaviour in ways that give a diagnosis? Even though we don't want to misdiagnoses, why are we doing all of this diagnosis? It's because we can't find other ways of making sense of the baby's behaviour. Can we help parents take that power back and make sense of the baby's behaviour in other ways? And then, of course, all of this is so bound up with a woman's emotional well-being and mental health because we know from the research, if you've got the breastfeeding problems, if you've got sleep problems, um, if you've got a baby who's crying for long hours each day, well, we've got a woman who's at serious risk of postnatal depression. Um, so all of all of our our conflicting advice drives up anxiety for parents um, for that woman, and of course you know that's going to increase her risk of of, of postnatal depression. So am I making sense, Amy? You're making so much sense, and I wish I had known about you 15 years ago, but then I wouldn't be here. So that's okay. <laughs> and that's yes, and that's it, isn't it? We 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 go through what we need so to. messy, isn't it? And then we turn our experiences into something so profound as you're that's doing right. that gives that gives to all these other women yes. and parents. Just one I've last written that book. Sorry. I, can I just mention the discontented little baby book? I should just yes. throw that in there because yes, in please. a way that's simple. I, I like to think it's accessible. It's stories that's available. Thank you, yes. And we'll put all yes. the links to these in the show notes for everyone listening. Oh, thanks, Don. Yep. Perhaps the last thing um, I would love for you to reflect on, it's a favourite rant of mine, um, and I'm sure you will feel the same, but listening to what you were saying about um, how we're doing it differently and what we hope mothers will get, it, it's still in my mind I hear that it's this woman on her own, perhaps if she's lucky, a supportive partner, but it's still responding to the baby, she's the only one who's doing that. I still think that, yes, we can work on this individual level, but we're never, I, I don't see how we're ever going to change it in a big way until we then also get that village back around here again, like you described in those First Nation families, where it's not just the birthing parent who is holding this child 24-7. There are aunts and cousins and siblings and neighbours and like, ah, oh, I don't know about you, but I get to the point where I think there's only so much we can tweak this individual solution because in the end, it's a cultural solution we actually need. I think that's right, Amy. It's it's a, a problem that's deeply embedded in um, 
societal fragmentation really and loneliness, isolation. Yes. Um, yeah. A much broader problem than than through this time of matrescence. Um, quite profound. Um, so, um, maternity leave, for instance, paid maternity leave, another big social problem that would, would help. Changes there would, would help um, women with babies, parents with babies. But because um, my role, um, very interested in broader social change, but in developing up the NDC or the Possums programs, I've looked at how we can, um, you know, support, let's say that primary carer is the woman, support her to live as well and with as much enjoyment as she possibly can anyway. And mm. so I'm always telling her to go out and just make that village. Mm. Like as hard as it is to put one foot in front of the other and get out of the house when you've got a baby, particularly if you're dealing with any problems there and sleep deprivation, nevertheless, this is absolutely critical to getting through the days and the weeks, um, is, is getting out and getting socially engaged, creating that village as best you can yes. with, with other families, with other, other absolutely. women and their I've babies. Been, I've even been thinking lately, I know you said earlier that you're a grandmother, um, I've even been thinking about wouldn't it be wonderful if we had more carers leave for the grandparents to be able to step in in those first six months of being able to really put this village around both new parents, um, like it, all of these layers, as you said, of reconstructing the way we see the family in our culture. I mean, that could be another whole conversation, but... It um, could be. <laughs> which we won't have time for today. But I love no, that no. Even though it's hard, even though it's a challenge, especially if you have a child that didn't stop crying and didn't sleep like I did, you have to try and get out there and find places and spaces. Um, I often say one of the hidden blessings of that first experience was that my daughter was born with some challenging physical needs so I needed to go back to the hospital every day for physio for her for the first six weeks and that I think Pamela is probably the only reason I didn't completely break and have postnatal depression and all of it mm. was because I walked into that hospital every day and I was surrounded by midwives and lactation consultants and people who were just basically holding the baby with me to get me through those yeah. weeks. And I honestly think if, if, you know, wouldn't that be wonderful if we had places and spaces we could walk in every day and say, it's another really hard day, can you help me? Because that was what got me through. Wouldn't that be amazing? Absolutely, Amy, absolutely. Um, mm. That's it. So I'm <laughs> very supportive of efforts, you know, across various parts of our society now to, to, to sort of try to move more towards that, but we've got an yes. incredibly long way to go. We do. Um, but thank goodness yeah. we're starting. Yeah. Yes. yes, that's it. That's it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I um, am so grateful I found you and your work, and we will put the link to your work at drpam.baby or drpam.au, as you said, in the show notes, the training that you offer for both health practitioners and for parents, the masterclasses, all of it is such a beautiful first step for so many listeners. So again, for your time and your work, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Thanks, Amy. It's been a real pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you.
You can find all of Dr. Pamela Douglas's work in the show notes and go to drpam.baby. Please have a look as about now she will have the details of her training that is available for practitioners, health practitioners, as well as new support for mothers, fathers, families and children. I hope that these conversations continue to show you, beautiful mama and listener, that although the system is very broken, as you heard me reflect in this interview, in a way that still, even after 15 years, deeply affects me, brings tears to my eyes as I talk about it every single time. I hope this interview shows you that we're also finding our way forward, that there are ways for us to do this differently. And that's what we're here to do through storytelling, through conversation, through finally taking that mask of motherhood off and showing each other how we can do this differently. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing this podcast and this movement with each other. This is how we change things. Until next week, Satna. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.